Hello. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, thank you all for uh, coming to the seminar this afternoon. Uh, we are Salt Factory, um, and we have we are very lucky to have Sam Neil and some of his very great friends. So um, I'm going to hand it over to Sam, and hopefully he's going to give you a great seminar. I know he will. Thank you, Andy. Good afternoon. I just want to read you some headlines that have come out recently about artificial intelligence. Goldman Sachs estimates that two-thirds of jobs in the US are exposed to some degree of automation due to AI, and 25% of those exposed occupations could have as much as half of their workload replaced. Economists at the University of Pennsylvania have come up with similar estimates. Goldman argues that AI has the potential to raise growth in global productivity by 1.5%. It'll take years for such efforts to become apparent at a big level, but for now, trying to access the effects of AI relies more on individual studies, cases, and stories, most of which highlight the potential rather than the limitations of the technology. Chief Executive of Octopus Energy UK said that last month, said last month that AI was doing the work of 250 customer service workers and writing emails that delivered 80% customer satisfaction, which was well above the 65% achieved by skilled, trained people. Other stories also speak to the change brought about by AI. CEO of IBM recently said the firm would pause hiring for new roles that could be replaced by AI in the coming years. Last price, the share price of Chegg, an online education provider, fell by half after it said that its students were, becoming incre were increasingly turning to ChatGPT for tuition instead of it. By contrast, shares in chipmaker NVIDIA rose 30% after it predicted a surge in demand to build generative AI models. A recent survey of 12,000 workers by Fishbowl, a professional, professional network app, found that 43% of professionals had used tools like ChatGPT, a large majority, without their bosses knowing. AI is making an impact on our world. This seminar is called, I think pronounced, Tear AI-ified. And we as Christians, I didn't title it, I should say. We as Christians can feel a little bit um, lost in this world that is somewhat technical, has huge implications for all aspects of society, and is moving incredibly quickly. So we have a panel of so-called experts here with us today. Most of them are quick to tell me they're not experts. Steve Jobs, one of my favorite quotes uh, that he once said was that you should never trust an expert. So we'll just call them panelists for now. Uh, and I'm going to ask these guys to introduce themselves. So Peter, start with yourself and we'll go around. Oh, I, yeah, I'm Pete Linus. I work with uh, Evangelical Alliance and I'm not an expert. Uh, my name's Andrew Morell. Uh, I work for an education provider in Belfast and uh, I am a developer, a software engineer by trade, um, but I'm also not an expert on many things. Sound like an expert. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm Lisa Claire Whitten. I am a postdoc researcher at Queen's University in Belfast, and I'm into politics and legal dynamics, so any technical questions, I'm not answering. <laughs> uh, I'm Matthew Thompson. Uh, I work for a major Wall Street bank. It's based in Belfast. You can have an educated guess about which one it is. <laughs> and uh, I studied law at Queen's um, University of Belfast. Within um, the investment bank, I do their legal and compliance work. So you can kind of see the fields of the expertise went over. And I've done that job for about nine years now. 
Brilliant. And my name is Sam Neal. I'm a full-time management consultant for a large, um, well, for a global consultancy firm. And on the side, I also run a business making uh, jewelry, making engagement rings and wedding rings. So between the five of us, we're going to provide some insights, some different lenses on what we're thinking might happen here with AI. And um, Peter's got some legal context, but also that EI slant of how should Christians respond to this in public. Andrew's got some technical insight not describing himself as an expert, but he does know his stuff. Um, Lisa has a PhD in Brexit, is that fair to say? Uh, and Matt, I've never met anyone more knowledgeable about money, business, the economy than this man beside me. All of them are incredibly godly, insightful people. So hopefully we'll get a Christian perspective running through our discussion. So, Andrew, I did warn you I might come to you first. As a technical expert, no, I'm only joking. Andrew, tell us, in non-technical terms, we're talking about AI, and it's a term that's getting beaten about a lot. Wh what is it? So w what it's not, to start with, is Ultron from the Marvel movies. Um, it's not a big, it's not uh, a big scary thing that is gonna destroy everything by using um, laser beams and uh, casts off from Iron Man. Um, I, think, I think the key thing about it is, is artificial intelligence is a questionable name for it. There's lots of different other names that people have used for it. But it's basically when we use computers, when we use technology to do jobs that normally we would have assumed humans would have done. Um, so we've had calculators for years. Um, calculators are really straightforward. You put in some numbers, push some buttons, you get some other stuff back. And what people are starting to see now is that AI, which when people talk about AI, they quite often mean generative AI like ChatGPT, which basically you put in some words and you get some other words back. So in some senses, AI is a calculator for words. The challenge is with numbers, you know that four plus four gets eight. You know that no matter how many times you do four plus four, you will get eight. The problem with some of the generative AI is that if you put some stuff in, you will get some stuff back, but that some stuff may change depending where you look at, depending on who has written the artificial intelligence, depending what sources they're using. So again, ChatGPT as an example, works up until the free stuff that everyone's been using, works up until the internet from 2021. So anything that's happened in the last two years, if you want to plan your trip to Barcelona, that's great, unless the thing's been built in the last two years and you won't find anything about it. So artificial intelligence has been around for years and years and years and years, and we haven't talked about it as artificial intelligence. When you go onto YouTube and they say, here's some other videos to watch, that's artificial intelligence. When you go into Amazon or any other um, provider of, of things you can buy, they'll say, people that have bought this have also bought these things. Do you want to buy some of this stuff? It's using machine learning to give us information back rather than very specific procedural things where you do one thing after the next. That's a really good explanation and quite a, quite a demystifying one in a sense. So we're sort of saying, right, artificial intelligence isn't this big, distant, complex, superhero thing that's actually, we're quite familiar with its outputs and inputs to some extent. And one element you picked up on there is quite interesting. So almost that you can put some stuff in and you'll get some stuff out, but what you get out is going to vary depending on what we put in. So it's kind of like you might ask a question that is may have a, a subjective answer. You know, where where's the best place in the world to live? And if I think it's the USA and I've programmed this chatbot, then maybe the USA is higher up than somewhere else might be, for example. So I just want to pick up on that strand. And, and so probably Lisa, just thinking about this idea, 
you've got a background in, in political research and I mean a broader base of knowledge than that as well you do very humble about it but you're very knowledgeable just talk to us about that idea just that what happens if, if something like ChatGPT starts to p communicate a particular viewpoint or slant on the world what does that look like and should we be, be concerned about that hmm. yeah so I guess um, in all of AI we're talking about machine learning and that requires data like Andrew said and there are limitations to that data um, and it might be a time-bound thing but I think one of the key uh, implications of AI and the developments now is that the data that we have to rely on is the human history um, so the internet is most often the kind of big data source for AI and human history and therefore the internet reflects this has been racist, misogynist, xenophobic. Broadly, there have been trends throughout all of our his historic past that we don't like to repeat, that we don't want to repeat. And there has been a very broad speaking, and we could, this is a whole other conversation, but about the progression of values and expectations that the global society now has. The problem sometimes with AI is that the outputs reflect that discrimination the discrimination of history so there's we talk about historic bias being repeated as an example um, and i'm gonna forget the name of the person but i think it was a deputy director in apple a couple of years ago um kind of came became public by saying that the algorithm generated assessment of his wife's credit score was 10 percentage points below the algorithmic assessment of his credit score but they had all shared accounts. So the AI had generated an assessment of his wife's like financial value to be 10 percentage points below him, but below his, even though all of the figures are exactly the same, but because she's a woman and therefore based on history and the context of the society, she is less likely as a woman to have financial capability that he has. So it's those sorts of things and we could, facial recognition is also a major problematic one in the use of algorithm and AI because the facial recognition um, data that we have to input is generally tends towards um, lighter skin and male faces so they're they're less accurate when you're talking about darker skin faces and female faces and while that's that feels like something we can just fix in the like a bug in the machine to be fixed but it's always going to be that way because the data that we have available to feed into it is our history and that's um, going to be reflected and then we play that out in the use of surveillance technology and by police and less accuracy um, yeah sure uh, so the outputs we need to be careful of what they can reinforce and discrimination they can reinforce and then on the much more practical immediate uh, point working in um, Queens and in higher education uh, chat GPT can generate a really plausible essay response if you as a student are seeking to use it but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's all accurate it's plausible it can have wrong information um, and so that's why we still need to be able to assess there we go very interesting thank you just to check on volume can you hear me okay at this level yeah if at any point you can't okay someone's doing a bit of that let's try a wee bit closer a wee bit louder um, thank you, Lisa. So you've raised some really interesting points there. 
And the bit you kind of touched on was the idea of something being plausible but not necessarily accurate. So I suppose passing this over to you, Peter, thinking about that idea of something being plausible but not necessarily accurate or even true. What, what does that look like in society if we start to put out, okay, you know, I asked ChatGPT and it said this or any chatbot, therefore it must be right. Just give us some thoughts around that. Um, well, one of the things I was thinking about was there's a thing called pulpit AI. So you can uh, put your sermon in, it's my world, and uh, it will generate uh, sermon notes, it'll generate small group questions, um, it will generate a series of tweets, and um, it will do everything for you. So now, is that okay? Or do your sermon prep for you? But it depends what parameters you put in. So I think we've all said, look, AI is everything, and which function you use and how you choose to use it could be really interesting. So I was in the office and saying, what about sermon prep? If I said, get me a three-point sermon from Romans 2 and use Tom Wright, is that okay? And they were all going, no, no, definitely not. And I was like, I think it sounds fine to me. Like, let's just see and play around. Um, I was like, well, is that any different than me looking up Tom Wright's books? So if I set some parameters as to what sources you can access, that's going to... But I also have the capacity and experience to immediately scan, as you were saying. So I go, oh, well, that's just clearly wrong. <laughs> There's something they pulled from the internet that's just a misunderstanding. So that's okay if you've got the experience to be able to do that, to use some basic research functions, but then it's the ability to discern, whereas somebody coming through first time might go, oh, that looks amazing, great, I've got a basic outline, I've got a sermon, I might fill it in, I'll put some illustrations in. Um, but, but what they've missed is there's a very fundamental, <laughs> potentially a heresy right in the middle of that, or the equivalent in all our spheres, whether you do it legally, and again, you've got this fundamental misunderstanding in the core. If you don't have enough experience and knowledge to be able to assess that, I think that's where it gets really problematic. So um, is going to replace aspects of knowledge retention. So much of our education system is, can you take in all this knowledge and then regurgitate it at a later point? That is, and schools, it feels like at the minute are going, right, well, how do we make sure that's still their, pre their basic premise and principle? How do we stop people cheating on the essay at the end? You're like, well, that's to miss the point in my view. This thing is able to do knowledge regurgitation better than we do. What it can't do is wisdom. So what are we going to do to teach wisdom in this moment that's going to be different? So how are we going to teach the discernment process? So as I'm thinking with my kids, like the reality is, how many people have used ChatGP to do something, to produce an essay, write a homework, do anything? Smaller than I thought, but by next year, that's going to be half. And by the year after, that's going to be everybody, isn't it? So now it's all coming. And what do we mean? ChatGPT is obviously one of the variables, and there's loads of them. So what, wisdom and discernment is going to become so much more interesting. One of the things I think is really interesting without jumping too far ahead for us as Christians is we do a lot more of that in community maybe than our world does in general. But we've got to be able to wrestle with that point. So I think it's fascinating. And we're not going to give you a binary answer. And none of us think it's either, I doubt, all good or all bad. We're all using aspects of it already, as Andrew has pointed out. But the large language models are going to get really interesting. This is the stuff where ChatGTP has one, one trillion variables. Facebook limits it, I think, to 64 billion, I heard Zuck saying, so that you can use it much more mobile. They are taking one trillion variables and in an instant collating all the different words and how they might go together to get the next most logical word in the sentence or sequence. But that begins to communicate and as it learns my way of communicating, I can train chat TP, GPT on my way of communicating, upload all my sermons and ask it to produce sermons in my style. That very quickly convinces me I'm, whoa, that's an amazing sermon. Of course I think that because I wrote the versions of it that fed it. <laughs> You can see how it's going to be easily able to convince me of all sorts of things. So it becomes incredibly persuasive as it learns who I am. And it will create pseudo-intimacy and, and persuasion tools that are going to be incredibly good. I'm going to go, wow, 
of course I'm going to go, wow, because it's got 15 of my sermons and throwing them back at me or 15 of my pitches, whatever it is. And I now think that's fantastic and I'm persuaded, but it's now changed what it's selling to me. And I think it's fantastic because it's just sold me back myself. Does that make sense? That's where it's going to get really interesting for me. And it's it's dangerous, yes, but it's a reality we're going to have to wrestle with because it is going to get better at persuasion than any human being that currently exists because it's going to know me inside out, but also know linguistic things are going to play for me. And then it'll do the same thing. for It'll sell us all the same product, but in four different ways, radically different ways. It's going to be really hard to wrestle through some of that. That's where it gets interesting for me. And I just want to come in with a, a, a small example. So data, knowledge, wisdom is really key that we understand the difference between that. So knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is not putting it in a fruit salad. And I think, I think the challenge with it is, is that we have, we have data that is from all over the place, and we see that data is huge. Again, if we compare the difference between numbers and words, data in numbers, when we put it together, we will get the same knowledge or information that will come out from the, from the middle of it. And for us as believers, fundamentally, that next gap to what is wisdom has to be the thing that we look at. That's where people bring their expertise. That's where um, we don't have anybody any problem with somebody using a photocopier to, to or a print printing press to move stuff out, to do things that are just basically black and white um, and move them. And so we have to be okay to not say AI is bad, but we need to understand where does wisdom come in in the middle of it. And I think that's the differentiation between what's data, what's knowledge or information, and what's wisdom, I think is really key. So, some really interesting. Sure <laughs> yeah, how can we make it? Um, yeah, so that's really interesting. So that difference between knowledge, data, and wisdom. So data in itself is becoming a bigger and bigger part of this puzzle as well. Like more and more data is being collected. You know, right now, you might think that you're you're not having anything collected, but the reality is there are probably upwards of fifty or sixty phones in the room. There are multiple laptops in the room. We're, we're speaking of something that's going to be recorded. That medium is going to go online. That will then be accessible. Voice recognition is improving rapidly. So if we record something and put it online, and it's on the Summer Madness website or the app, there is software that will listen to that, digest it all, pick out the words, pick out what's being said, understand the, the sort of average views of Summer Madness as a thing. And years to come, what we are saying now may well, very likely will be fed into AI. So if we say, you know, what would Peter Linus say if he was asked about whether you should prepare a sermon on AI, ChatGPT will probably be able to tell you, well, Peter thinks, you know, if you tell it to only look at Tom Wright's book and avoid heresy, then he's in favor of it. Which means that if you want to manipulate Peter Linus, you've then got a handle on it, right? You've got some insight there. I used to work in a sales context and was encouraged to do some experimentation with ChatGPT in the lead up to this. And my goodness, as a sales tool, it's incredible. I told it to sell me something I didn't need. I said, I am bold, sell me a hairbrush. And the most incredible attempt at selling a hairbrush. And then they talked about the quality of the hairbrush and how it was made and the experience of massaging your scalp with a hairbrush. Incredibly creative and just instant. Can I buy one? <laughs> Talk to me after. And. And so with things like that, we think, wow, this is actually mad. And I thought, well, let's, let's make it harder. Let's say it's not a good quality hairbrush. Let's say it's, it's the worst hairbrush that's ever been made and in bold. Sell it to me now. And again, it makes it into this whole brushing experience of how the, the unpredictability of when the bristles are going to fall out or the handle's going to come off adds to the adventure of it. And it's, in, it's incredible. So sometimes there's this real creative, even comedic edge that comes in there because of the, the breadth of data that's available to something like this. 
where they bring in data sources that we might not even think of. You know, I might not look to a comedian to help me know how to sell something, but ChatGPT might. So back on the theme of wisdom then, Matt, talk to us about, so a couple of things in this would be good to get your slant on. So it would be good to, to hear your opinion, sort of the idea of prepping a sermon through an AI, but also talk us about the role of wisdom and what about the role of the Holy Spirit in this, preparing a sermon, praying into this? Can we just outsource that all to AI or... What do you think? Well, I think what you're missing, because Peter raised a really good point. Oh, sorry. Everyone got me okay? I think what Peter raised a really good point in that in terms of when it comes to preaching itself, it's our own wisdom experience, our interpretation of scripture, and then also our personality relays something of it. So there's no reason why we can, you know, type in a, a sermon here, put it up on the laptop, and then just play it out for all of us to listen to. And it'd be very informative and it'd be correct and we'd do that, but it'd be very robotic and very square. It wouldn't really go down very well. So I think what it's really missing in that is actually the personality of the preacher. And you can see how the Spirit of God leads uh, the prophets, for example, in that. Very much entwining their experience, their culture, their context, but also their personalities in that. Some are, are very expressive, some of them uh, use uh, really vivid imagery or, or descriptions of imaginations. So there's, there's an element of that where, you know, the Lord is actually imparting us by His Spirit, and we are partnering with Him in order that we may communicate to one another through God's Word, and then understand, well, how do we live for God? How do we respond to Him? Um, what does it mean to, to follow Him, etc., etc.? So I think there's something really good to be gained from maybe checking or, or reviewing, sort of tidying up things and that, or it could be like a fact checker in terms of using AI. But in terms of just giving it from scratch, it may come up with something that's very knowledgeable and informative, but I don't know how it's going to communicate to our hearts or, or our spirits as, as, as Christians, as believers in that regard. Yeah, interesting. And the role of personality in that is an interesting one too, which yeah. could easily be, be overlooked. So conscious that conscious of time, but also the stream of, of our direction is almost be, hey, look, we're not too worried, you know, AI can do this, but it can't do this. I imagine some of us in the room are in some way concerned about this, right? There's, there's bound to be a degree of fear or tension or angst around this. We've each got different lenses in this. Just briefly, let's go around the house here and just give us a, two or three points of what are your concerns about this technology? Subtle. <laughs> <laughs> just keep it, keep it um, short and snappy and we'll go back on I think for me, the language piece, so this is a large language model, language, God speaks in Genesis 3 and God, or sorry, Genesis 1 and God calls life into being. Language is absolutely fundamental to who we are and our understanding. It's our key to communication. And what this is doing is piggybacking on human knowledge to understand how to communicate and how to develop language. This is the differential from numbers for me. It, it, it's not, that's not bad in and of itself, but it really opens up the risks. What happens in Genesis 3 is you have the twisting and deception of language. It's, it's, it's language, a certain approach with language and a claim around language, a slight twist on the language and, and, and does a temptation on that. So I'm really intrigued and nervous about the language. So logistics and getting things done, great. The selling, the persuasion, the potential, is, this idea of pseudo-intimacy, this builds relationships and connection. I mean, you know, not worried, the sex robots are the kind of thing out there in the outer reaches, but actually much deeper is could you have a best friend who's an AI essentially? like right into the core. And it, like we have to wrestle with, is that bad? I think the embodied experience that we have as human, like it is absolutely critical to our being human to be embodied and language is critical to our communication and our ability. And so we've seen the undermining of language more generally. The filter bubbles, the kind of undermining, the changing of meaning of words. 
What AI does to that next could cause a very chaotic edge. And I think there is some truth to that. So I'm not like in the fear, paranoia on that, but I think that's where the core goes. Genesis 3 attack was on language. This is what we need to be really alert to and what it is to be embodied human beings. And, and language is absolutely core to our understanding of who we are and to the divine speech acts that call forth life in the text. That's always our role. Jesus comes as the Logos, the word. Like, this is really important stuff that we're going to have to wrestle with. And AI, sorry, too long, but the ethics, there is no ethics in behind. Like, people are not really wrestling with an ethical, they're saying it's there, but nobody knows what to do. And I think that's a really exciting place for us to engage in the conversations. Of course, this needs ethics and boundaries. Let's talk about what those look like. The conversation's there, but it's not, nobody really can suggest a frame. We go, actually, yeah, let's get in on this. This is fantastic. Ethics has always sat in theology and the academic disciplines for good reason. So let's have the moral, ethical conversation and contribute well rather than being paranoid or running away. Uh, my big fear will probably be deep fakes. Um, so that's the ability for um, generative AI to make it look like someone has said something. So through videos, through through things like that. And I think there's already a threat on truth. Um, we have seen it. If you put in the question, it should be obvious who won the last American presidential election. You will get the, the answer is Joe Biden because he's currently the president. But if you look at a whole pa a whole while, um, whole whack of, of websites, you will find that he didn't win the the election somebody else won the election and and all of a sudden that fear about what is truth can be reinforced over and over and over again it used to be when we lived in villages if one person believed something that was wrong the rest of the village would be able to say yeah no that's that's not right or that action is wrong don't do that the problem is now that one guy in the village can go and find 50 60 100 people across the seven or eight billion people of us that agree with them and all of a sudden that legitimate legitimizes their slightly strange view um and so the problem is is that ai makes it easier for people to come across things and go i don't know what's true or not um 1984 the book by um orwell talks about how there's three countries basically in it and two countries are always at war and then they change their mind and say we're not at them we've never been at war with them we're now at war with these guys and then that reshaping of history through artificial intelligence things like that but again that's not a problem with ai that's a problem with people that's a problem with people not wanting truth not wanting to be told that what they believe may not be right perpetuated by ai though right correct um, so I would look more at the political social um, impacts and say number one concern is just the clear evidence that use of AI can reinforce historical discrimination and bias. Um, and when we look at some of the practical applications of kind of algorithms and AI um, machine learning in, for example, justice systems, in surveillance and in policing, and also in allocation of resources, um, it suggests that this is going to hit the poorest um, and the mo most vulnerable uh, tiers of society hardest in terms of its um, negative impacts. So as Christians, you know, we are called to um, act for justice and to defend the cause of, of the poor and that, that really should matter to us and so we, we should wrestle with the implications socially. Then the second strand of that that I would um, 
flag is just about that kind of reinforcing what we want to hear um, and we've seen this a lot in like the effect of algorithms on our political views on our voting intentions on our consumption of news and of information on what we choose to buy on what we choose to read and consume all of that because most of the time these days it's through a screen and so algorithms are affecting that and political science research tells us that that tends towards polarization and it has had consequences in terms of our ability to dialogue across difference is reducing in some correlation to the use of algorithms and their effect on our lives in terms of our views and our consumption of information. So those would be my two sociological, political strands. And, and just to kind of recap that chain, so we have language moving into kind of what's true, truth and deep fakes within that, then societal impacts, but also again that reinforcing biases as you as you mentioned a bit earlier. Okay, Matt, I mean we'd be keen to get your financial you know, yeah. banker lens in this too. Yeah, well from a financial point of view, you think that now AI is advanced enough where it's incredibly good at data storage, data retention, data transfer. So all those jobs that are being done now in terms of storing your information, in terms of analyzing it and then making decisions on you, whether you're applying for a credit card, your mortgage or an overdraft or whatever that may be, those jobs will increasingly go away from a human element and coming more into a computer element. That's inevitable. Doesn't necessarily mean that jobs will be lost, but jobs will have to change. Things will have to be upskilled. People will have to learn how to interact with these technologies. They'll certainly have to learn how to deal with them whenever they go wrong or how decisions can be overruled and, 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 and done that way. But I think that um, in terms of AI itself, the main Achilles heel I say them, and maybe you guys correct me on this, but the main Achilles heel I say is it's a lack of perception. So it's one thing to be able to solve a problem or a set of problems, but it's another thing to calculate in our minds how we actually go about those problems, and that's the big thing of it. And even in the role I do currently within the investment bank, it's very much related to subjective analysis. So we could get A plus B plus C equals you know D, or we can get A, A plus B plus C and it equals like F or something else. What we're really doing in my role is measuring the legal, the legal risk appetite and yes, you can maybe set an AI to you know, a particular tolerance or another tolerance, but whoever's programmed that algorithm would have to go in constantly and change it, and you would end up having to do a human's job anyway. So it's a lack of perception, and in that way it's not very advanced. But I think the last thing I'll say is that the fear around it is, AI doesn't really need to be that advanced in order to have a destructive or a controlling effect. Um, and the big example, the scary example that, that sets it for me is the way that China has, has uh, imprisoned and, and locked up uh, Mus or the Uyghur Muslims. And that in the main city there in Xinjiang province, I think there's something like millions of CCTV cameras, facial recognition software, given social credit scores. Um, people are constantly asked to check in at police stations and checkpoints, up to upload their, their mobile phone data. They can then you know, lose points, gain points, be interned if, uh, if they don't like, officials don't like what they're actually seeing or reading in that. And that recognition software sounds scary, but actually it's not that advanced. It's been around for a long time. And now there are Western nations who are actually buying this technology as well. I remember reading a, an experiment they did, I think, on the M25, where they put in these facial recognition cameras and they tuned them to see people using their mobile phones. And I think within a week, they got 700 people. So it would be like 700 fines, three points and whatever amount of money it is on your, for, for using your phone while driving, whereas a normal conventional camera probably wouldn't have seen that and you wouldn't have been caught unless a police officer had seen you at the side of the road. So there's... Again, where it's not that advanced and where we still have a human mind is perceptive and subjective. Um, it doesn't really need to be that advanced in order for it to be dangerous, scary, or for to have real concerns around it. 
Very interesting. Um, just to check on volume again, someone put it in the rear there. Still happy, yeah? Um, just on, on my lens then, management consultancy and also the creative side with, with jewelry and the goldsmith thing. My business and many consultancies around the world stand to make billions from AI. And the fact that so many companies stand to make so much profit means that there is effectively an arms race to get to the most sophisticated, most profitable model that you can come up with, regardless of the consequences of society. Unfortunately, legal legislation lags behind the technological advancement. The European Union has recently legislated, and you might have a bit of insight in this, Lisa, um, around a couple of aspects of AI, predictive policing being one of them, how you predict someone's behavior, and then before they're actually a criminal, you might not charge them, but you might start keeping tabs on them until they become a criminal, then you arrest them. And actually, what, what, is that, what are the implications of that for Christians? Thought policing, like we're seeing in China. Beyond that, though, there are a lot of jobs that are exposed to automation here, and that is going to send some sort of shockwaves through our economy. Some jobs will change, others will disappear, and others are disappearing. So we've got to think about that as Christians, how we feel about that, the implications of that. In the creative space, I remember someone saying a few years ago that AI is great because it's going to do all the boring things and we'll be able to, fo able to focus on doing what we love. However, I'm seeing more and more graphic design work being done by AI. I'm seeing more and more physical construction being um, automated through intelligent machines. So you essentially, you get, I mean, we've probably all seen the draw, maybe not all, some of us will have seen the drawings and designs created by AI, the deep fakes like Andrew talked about. I mean, you can create 8K, 8K quality video of a what looks like a human saying whatever you want it to say, and you can, you can program it with, with Andrew's voice or my voice or make it look like him or me. That's, that's the stage we're at, and that's just what's publicly available. What, what level of tech of worlds within military exists within a military context? They say military technology can um, outdo publicly available technology by about 12 years. So what, you know, within uh, secret context, what level of AI is being used to used there? Another odd angle on this is that AI will at some point be used to kill people. This will be used in war zones. This will be used to reinforce military operations across the world. And unfortunately, we have very little control over that because if one large superpower in the world does it, another one will feel the need to then match it. So we've got to think about this and how this plays out. It's very easy to be casual about this. This is making things um, easier for me, but actually, what are the wider implications? Peter's just picked up the mic, which isn't a good sign. Well, what He's going to chance on the I doubt it's a will on the uh, will kill somebody. I suspect AI has already killed somebody. Yep. Yeah. I mean, military's 12 years ahead, and we're already would say that's viable yeah. as a non-military person, so I suspect that's already happened. And yeah. that takes you to the ethics of that. So was anybody... I mean, we already had the drone strikes. I remember speaking to a friend standing outside a primary school in Northern Ireland, and he was commanding drone strikes from an American operator in the Yemen. Yeah. Um, uh, so, you know, that's already the bounds of AI, but it's gone beyond that. The decision-making has gone to the AI, I suspect, already. Yeah. And we're in that space, and this is where the ethics goes to a new level. And yet, and yet, in the middle of that, yes, the military tech stuff goes out to one side. Um, nobody really complains about sewing machines. We were talking earlier. Um, a sewing machine means that somebody can do the job that somebody else used to do by hand, and they can do it much quicker. Are, are we are we anti sewing machines because a sewing machine can do? So if you picked up a sewing machine and threw it, someone it would probably kill them. It's like the technology in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing, and I and I guess the challenge with it is is to understand judgment, perception. We've talked about wisdom. All that sort of stuff matters in what people bring to it. 
technology in and of itself can be used for good. So if we, we can find the people who we want to find and imprison, in some places we can also find the people who are lost and vulnerable, and we can bring them home and bring them to safety. So technology can be used for both sides of those things, and we need to be very careful that we don't promote the view which is technology bad, become a Luddite, don't use zips, whatever the thing may be, because we can very quickly lose lose any sort of moral stuff in the middle of it. I'm gonna, I've, I've people on both sides we want to speak now. I finally got a reaction. Hey, you just zips. It's gonna, it's controversial. I, 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 so I agree on the technology, and all technology is bad. I think the sewing machine analogy is highly limited stroke fails because generative AI is decision making way beyond just sewing. So it's making decisions on the kill. It's not just implementing the kill on the drone analogy. Which I'd, so yeah. I, that's where they hesitate. So it, it, it's doing something beyond. And I think it's the Amish approach is great. Like they're not anti-technology, but they wait and assume it's, they don't assume it's good. We just take everything and we send slow down, work it through. But the decision-making capability on this AI has a, has a, has a scary edge to me, I'll say. I'm going to, I've already embraced loads of, there's loads of AI and everything we've said, as we, but that generative piece takes us beyond and it will make decisions on our behalf and it potentially limits our freedom, restricts us. And that's where there is a challenge. It takes away our creativity or undermines it. We're like, this is fundamental to what it is to be a human being, a divine image bearer, to communicate, to speak, to decision make and to create. These are things we were given as human beings, but we are soon at the point where we will be in relationship with machines that are so pseudo real that we're like, what emotionally getting connected to a machine can a machine become a christian people already asked that like can an ai that that those are being written and that's great that people are thinking this is where it gets fascinating but also forces us to reflect so what does it mean to be human why are we wrestling with these questions in a really healthy way but man are the challenges coming <laughs> lisa uh quickly to don't disagree on the good implications of AI and I mean effectively it can make what humans already can do more efficient more effective and we haven't talked about its use in you know for healthcare and healing and development in kind of production and farming and food and all of that there are some really good implications but what I would challenge and push back a little bit is about the idea that this type of development or that some types of developments in AI is still neutral in the same way that we understand other technological developments to be or tools to be useful such as the sewing machine because on one level speaking back to that kind of data knowledge the data that is generally these AIs are based on is human history and human data and I've made this point before but that doesn't mean that it is neutral and its its conclusions are going to be based on non-neutral data in some circumstances at least and then I would also say that there is an issue of transparency so even those who are developing this technology in some spheres can't tell how the algorithm is producing the results and that's why it's atomized so the outputs are all individual and in different sectors and that's really problematic if we're going to try to give an assessment of its um, neutrality or otherwise and its kind of broad ethical philosophical implications um, so I'm not sure that this type of technological development is necessarily as neutral as previous technology developments. Feel free to contradict. So just to pause, we're getting to the point of disagreement, which is good, because kind of from the start that we wanted to get to, like we don't need to agree. But um, Matt, if you want to give a final, <laughs> final 20 seconds, and then we'll go to questions. No, I think 
we were talking about here the disagreement I think feel like we're almost between like two kind of dystopian novels so on one hand you've got Adelis Huxley's like uh, A Brave New World and on the other hand you've got Orwell's like 1984 and in Huxley's one the technology is used to like promote everything and just make everything amusing and wonderful and entertain and then and in, uh, Orwell's one of things used to sort of like control and oppress people and we're kind of like trying to bridge the gap between these two because you see the dangers on on one side where it's almost like amusing yourself to death and on the other side it's somebody else using it to really oppress control and I think the challenge for us as believers is to find where do we kind of meet in the middle of this how do we utilize the technology in a way that it's beneficial to ourselves and those around us mainly those around us first of all I think um, and then how do we apply our wisdom in that and who is actually engineering these systems? I think it's, it really is about the main place I think where we really, really get involved is around the, its ethics and its worldview. You know, why does, the, why does the technology operate in this way? Whose worldview is it? And, you know, do you imagine to have an AI technology thinking, you know, like a, like a, a Christian like, like the Lord? It would be absolutely amazing. It would be so beneficial for others. Great. Thank you. Okay. Lots of questions, many views, unconcluded, unanswered, but I'm conscious there could be questions in the room. So last last few minutes, do you want to raise your hand if you've got a question you want to ask? And yeah, do you want to go for it? Shout it out and I'll repeat it. Or Is it possible that the bad of AI could eventually outweigh the good or does it already? Because you, for example, you were talking about the pseudo relationships and this thing called Snapchat AI has recently come along. So that's like super accessible to teens and everything. They'll use it all the time. If they've got a problem and they feel like they can't talk to their friends about it, they go to AI for it, which pseudo relationship is creating this false sense of closeness with a machine that doesn't really care about you. Another example, it's probably already being used to kill people. It's if you use apps like TikTok, the AI is giving you this instant gratification thing. It knows what it needs to, keep, to, to make you keep watching. So when you look at all of those things and then you look at the good, is it possible that AI could cause more harm, especially if it's got, as you were saying, the racial, homophobic, misogynistic undertones? Yes, absolutely. There's there's very I mean there's very definitely the possibility that the, the the bad outweighs the good of it. No no question about that. That's why you have a lot of the senior engineers that are coming along and saying, just let's pause. Let's just think about this a little bit more. The challenge with it is is that the outworking of that is let's get government involved. That's kind of what they're talking about. They're kind of saying, let's get more governments involved in, in legislating, in organizing. What has been shown through history is that that, that doesn't really work either. Um, and I, I think that that is a, that is a fear or a concern. I, I think the data model being all those gaps is, is, a, real, is a real issue. Um, and that's where we trust that God is at work to build his kingdom here and now. And we need to be thinking, okay, as believers, how do we make sure that we're part of the conversation so that we shape it for good rather than just letting it go and saying, this is happening. This is going to continue to happen. It's not going to stop. They're not going to say we're not using this at all. And again, I think we need to be careful that we understand the nuances between what is good AI, what is okay that is doing stuff that is useful. Again, we don't complain about the calculator. I wasn't really suggesting just for clarity that a sewing machine was the same as AI, just <laughs> for my professional reputation. We've got on record. Um, <laughs> but, I, but I do think that the questions of what are the good versus the bad do need to be weighed up in a way that they're not at the minute. And I think it's a very fair point that you made, which is we're just accepting this wholesale because we like it. And I think that needs to stop. Perfect. I know we'd say more. Any more questions? Okay, Margaret was the first hand I saw, but you're, you're giving it, okay, yeah, go for it. Do you want to show another? Do you want to come up? Yeah. Um, so I guess what's 
Okay, so that's how should the church respond to the fact that data is becoming like a new currency and the challenge of data and AI combined? Uh, oh, you're looking back at me. I would like to give a wee answer on this. I'll give a half answer, um, and then if one is want to chip in. Um, so there's a very easy flow here where the most efficient path of least resistance is to just go with it. This is becoming easier to write sermons, as Peter alluded to. It's becoming easier just to manage administrative tasks. We've got lots of data on um, massive databases like Church Suite now, which makes it very easy to manage large church families and communications and all that. However, if we look at a country like China, all of those things are now being used strongly against Christians to uh, the point of persecution and worse than we can even imagine, like discrimination on a level we don't understand against Christians and people who are opposed to the government. So we need to realize that whenever we give over data, we are giving over control. And I mean, I am probably more paranoid, I'm definitely more paranoid about data than anyone in this panel. I have multiple phones, and I'll tell you how many, to segregate data. I don't have social media on my normal phone. There are little decisions that we can make to distance ourselves from some of that stuff, and even the noise that that creates, and the fact that we can be manipulated when we give Facebook all our information, it can actually make us buy products we otherwise wouldn't. So that one point is awareness, another point is just caution around it. And then a number three, I think, is, is almost reliance. You know, are we going to be reliant on this stuff? Oh, my whole life runs because I have this smartphone that I give all my information to and it does everything for me. Or could I live without it? Can I give up my phone for a month? Because I think that's a good conversation to have anyway in terms of fasting and spiritual health. Lisa's looking. Um, I think one thing I would say, even though we're talking a lot about the concerns and the dangers and we absolutely need to have these conversations and take them forward. But I also think as Christians, if we're operating out of fear, that's not going to be a fruitful place. You know, we're given a spirit of truth and of love and of a sound mind. And also with that, we need to apply it to the breadth of the impact of AI. Like the, as our conversation suggests, this is affecting our world in a myriad of different ways. And so as Christians, we have the opportunity to seek the wisdom of the Lord and seek heavenly wisdom and then apply it in the way that he's calling you to apply it wherever that takes you. So maybe that does mean that you actually get actively involved in the development of these technologies or maybe it's a more personal response to be much more conscious and and have a kind of godly approach to how AI affects your life and your engagement with algorithms and that sort of thing. Um, maybe it's more looking at the, the political or social impacts or the kind of truth and the theology and the ethical implications and trying to wrestle that stuff out. I think the Lord is going to call people, his people, to affect this change for his glory and towards the kingdom in so much as that is possible across all of the different spheres that it's going to affect because that's what he's like, you know. That's a beautiful answer. We have a couple of practices like Sabbath and fasting and silence and, and retreat that are deeply both biblical and within the Christian culture. And I think those are going to come to the fore as we disconnect sometimes in this world. So, But in, in often quite moderated and sensible ways, like they're actually deeply ingrained in our tradition. And I think in a world that actually has a whole problem with food and technology and a whole series of things, it's really interesting. The biblical practices are actually fantastic for this. So we need education, then we need habits and practices that are already deeply present in our Christian culture that will form the counterculture and say, actually, there's a better way, and people are looking. And then we can do co-belligerence with people uh, like the Center for Humane Technology. 
but we need to start at the basics of the phones again and realize the stuff that's already impacting us and then come away and do the Sabbath that you're talking about. These are great practices that we already kind of have a head start on, if you like. That's true. Great. Uh, conscious of our time, thank you for those answers. We'll maybe take one more question, and then most of these guys, I think, are free, going to commit their time now without their permission, to sort of hang around outside afterwards and, and chat to you one-to-one -one if you'd like to chat. But um, Margaret, I saw you your hand up last time. Going back to the sewing machine, what about the wee woman in India that can't feed her family of four, five, six children, but you give that woman a sewing machine and she can make a business and she can raise a family and she can reach out to others. AI's not going to do that, you know. And the cream, you guys are the cream, you know, of education. But the wee woman in India isn't. And there's wee people in our street corners in Belfast who aren't, and some of them are homeless and stuff like that. So I wondered, does it dumb down our compassion? And my other question is, can the Holy Spirit thwart? some of the AI stuff. Great easy question, Margaret. Who wants the feeling? Matt? I'd say, Margaret, from, from a financial point of view, it absolutely cuts down the compassion of it. Um, and that is a, a massive danger in it as well because you're reducing the person down to you know, their credit score, financial history, background, you know, likelihood of default things like that. And again, as that process moves away from, you know, once upon a time, you would go into, your, into your, your branch manager and said, I need a loan for this, and I want to start and do this. Can you help me out? And maybe think about it for a minute across the desk, go, well, okay, you know, give you whatever. That's, that's not what's going to be now in the future. It'll be, here's uh, what I need. Here's uh, my financial history. Here's my stuff. Uh, can you give me it? And it'll be either computer says yes or computer says no. So that's a huge danger to move away from, from that kind of view. And the only thing to add about your other question is absolutely the Holy Spirit could thwart some of this stuff. Absolutely. I, and and filter and filter it out, you know. And, and more than that, the Holy Spirit can use it for things like so there's been vaccines that have been they've been able to start develop certain things or uh, cures for things or data analysis on why is she poor in India? She's poor in India because of this. Let's let's look at the big data. So actually it's not a it's not as straight, straightforward, absolutely in terms of jobs, there'll be issues with that. But actually, if we can use it to work out why is there inequality in the world? Why are the widows and orphans, the foreigner, why are those people being excluded? What can we do about that? And some of those data models, if we can get them right, if we can, can get rid of some of the invisible data gap for women particularly, of what that looks like, the data gap for minorities, if we can, if we can actually call those out because of AI, that actually gives us the opportunity for a more just society. But we need to be calling out some of those things. Otherwise, we'll just continue with the same as, as we've talked about. The same, what we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. Yeah. One, one minor encouragement from AI in, one, in, a, in a sector is a third of the people in the world don't have access to a bank account. And now, because of AI technologies, you've got this open banking system sort of decentralized. And you've got lots more systems which are way more open and accessible. So people in third world countries actually have access to a bank account, far more secure in terms of their finances transferring. People who are coming into Western countries able to send money home. We have a, a young woman in our church who's doing that and doing some amazing things with that. So even the AI technology being used in a really positive way and a really accessible way, it's really positive as well. Great. Okay, I see people queuing up to get in. So, thank you so much, guys. As I say, these guys are around. Uh, do you want to give them a round of applause? <laughs> thank you to all of you. Much appreciated. Um, that is us.
clear off from this seminar. I'm going to pray for five seconds. Father, thanks for this time. Give us wisdom as we deal with these issues. Give us your Holy Spirit and let us not look to any of these things in place of you, but let us be discerning and godly in all our decisions around this stuff. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thank you so much. That's us.